is Yusai. Welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversations. On today's episode of Let's Talk, I meet with the talented Amanda Decatene, who has been a strong voice for women in media for decades, interviewing politicians, actors, musicians, and advocates. We talked about her latest endeavor, Girl Gaze, a platform for empowering women creatives. Also, Troy Johnson is a food writer and television personality whose charm and humor have made him a favorite host and panelist on Food Network. Amanda Decadene has made a name for herself in media as a television host, photographer, author, and advocate. She has always sought to amplify women's voices and perspectives. As a photographer, Amanda and I have a connection to an industry that is changing its approach to projecting individual points of view. From early in her career, Amanda has had the foresight and courage to introduce and openly discuss sensitive topics. She has broken this dialogue to enact change. I asked about what ignited her passion and how she developed her voice. Seeing the work that you have done, you have always been one step ahead of what we call trending subjects, anywhere from child trafficking issues to celebrating women empowerment in photography and creative field. Thank you so much. I feel very passionately about many things. I feel fortunate enough that I've been able to shine a light on things that I think need shining the light on. Because you have so many advocacy behind you and so many subject matters that inspires you, what was that sparked these inspirations and the strength for you to want to talk about things that a lot of people are afraid to talk about? I started working when I was 14 years old and I hosted a live late night talk show in the UK. And even today in the UK, there is not a woman that has their own interview series. I mean, we're in 2020. By the way, in America, it's not that much better, but certainly in the UK, you know, being very young and growing up on TV and being, um, you know, a very known person there, there was a lot of prejudice that went with looking like me and being a known person at a young age. A lot of misogyny, a lot of sexism, a lot of like, just shut up and look good. And then also, um, I spent a year in juvie when I was 15. And that really gave me a perspective that I could never have dreamed what that taught me. And so I then experienced what it was like to be even more marginalized and really, truly just be someone who was in the system. It was not about, you know, how you felt or how you saw things or it was just like you were just a number. And so I think those very early formative experiences really taught me the value of being seen and heard and being listened to. And also being able to represent yourself in a, in a genuine way, I had the opposite of those experiences. So from a very young age, I was fired up to not only for me to be seen and heard and to be represented truthfully as opposed to everyone projecting their idea onto me of who I was, but I was also really fired up to making sure that other women and girls and people who identify as female have that same freedom. So it was something that was sparked in me at a very young age based on my own experiences. Was there anybody that inspired you at that time? Other than the experience that you have gone through yourself, anybody that you looked up to that really helped you to build that strength? 
No, and that was one of the problems. And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to put role models forward. I wanted to interview women who could be role models. I wanted to photograph women in a way that was genuine, that then other women and girls could see uh, women's natural, authentic, genuine beauty. I wanted to put role models forward because when I was growing up, there just weren't women who were celebrated. I grew up in the UK and luckily women were not written out of history in the UK. So I learned about, you know, strong leaders like Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth and, you know, warriors like Queen Boadicea. So the only women I knew um, that were kind of role models were historical figures that I was taught about in history. But as far as like entertainment or media goes, you just didn't have famous people. I grew up at a time when there was like five famous people and I and I was one of them. Uh, you know, and it was, it was really weird. It was before social media and there was just television and magazines. So no, I didn't have role models and I, I have actively sought them my whole life. And I think that has been a real um, game changer for me, seeking women who I can learn from. That's incredible because for me as an Asian American, we share that same path. We look on television, we look at media, we look for someone that can help us realize that we can be amplified. And when you don't yeah. find a mere reflection in what you see, you can take two choices. One is say, well, I will never be able to have a voice because nobody like me has that voice. Or you take a stand like what you have done is paving forward and giving other people like you, women, blonde women, beautiful women, sexy women to be able to be strong and confident. And I want to talk about that because then when you transition your stature and your presence in the United States, and you begin to build this incredible relationship with such influential actresses and, and photograph them, when that began to develop and you begin to utilize your relationship to really amplify your passion, especially when you started, I remember with Demi Moore, the child trafficking project, share that a little bit with us. How do those things come about? That's a really interesting question. And I think you could probably answer that yourself because as you have had more to give and to contribute because your life experience has grown and your perspective has broadened, you can't give something you don't have, right? So if you don't have self-esteem, if you don't value your opinion, if you don't feel like you have anything to contribute, um, the truth is, is that even if you do, you're never going to put that forward because it's not your belief about yourself. And I think because I, at a very young age, started working, and I also think because I went through a lot of trauma at a very young age, I got into what I would consider recovery young. I had done a lot of work on myself and continue to, you know, it's an ongoing process um, to kind of develop my inside and who I was as a person as opposed to just the outside, because I always knew that the way I looked would get me in the room, Um, but it's not what keeps you in the room. What keeps you in the room is what you have to say, your ideas, your mind, your contribution, um, and it's who you are as a person. And so I started developing that young, and I still feel like that is the most important thing. When you bring your full self to work with you, um, people meet you where you are. They meet you where you're at, right? And so when you have less to contribute, you're going to connect with people who also have less to contribute. And that's fine. Those are the people that maybe you're going to go down the path with and you're both going to grow together. Or maybe you just walk side by side for a period of time until somebody else goes off in another direction. But I have had um, many girlfriends who we've been in each other's lives for a long time and have been growing along the same kind of trajectory. 
I think it's really about like what you bring to the table. I love that. It's awakening for me because reason that I said that it took me a while to find that voice and be able to ask somebody else to collectively to celebrate diversity or celebrate women empowerment, embrace all size matters when we're photographing women. You're right. It wasn't until I am confident enough to say my voice matters. And I think it's culturally too. For me as an Asian American, we bow our head and we just kind of put our head down and we work. We just work. We don't create drama. We don't, we don't become advocates. You know, we don't become mm. that voice. But because of this journey through where we are now, having a platform, realize that my platform can have a voice. I've been totally. by so many people. It says, you have a voice in our community and utilize that voice and we will stand with you. And today it validates that for me too. As photographers, we're responsible to our subjects for the images and messages we create. With her typical insight, Amanda recognizes how my work has evolved. But you also have celebrated women. I mean, I've been looking at your photographs for a long time, you know, and I can see, I just mean this objectively as someone who's from the outside looking in, like I've seen your growth as a photographer as well, like where you started and I could see as you started to celebrate women with an expanded perspective and it was noticeable because now it's more of a thing where people are open to celebrating more inclusive perspectives and bodies and ideals and but but it certainly wasn't that way I mean I did a story for Elle six years ago and I photographed all different ages body types, skin colors. And, um, and I did a, a beautiful nude of six or seven of the girls. And I remember sitting and, you know, I also photographed them nude because I felt like it was for me that for, to for ask them to be naked. Um, I felt like I was willing to be that vulnerable too. Mm. And I found a video footage the other day of it. And it was just like, it was amazing. I'm sitting there like butt naked with my camera. Um, and it was for Al. It wasn't, it wasn't something creepy, you know? And then there's, there's the girls sitting there naked. I just feel like I've been trying to push forward ideas for a very long time. And we all know who the, who the allies are. We know the people who are just like, great, the, the gates are open. Let's jump on it. Good. I don't care. I don't care whether people are just like, oh, great, this is the thing that everyone's doing now and I'm going to jump on the diversity train. Like, great, I don't care. Let's just get more people in the room, whatever works. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't care when you got here, how you got here. I just care you're here. I agree with that so much so that I know when there was a moment that I was able to be on television or be on a red carpet, I knew very well I got that phone call because that's a year that we're trying to celebrate more Asian diversity on the red carpet. Right. But you're right. But the opportunity did open and did pave the road. And being there is being part of the, the, the paving forward for others when people get to see I'm it. part of the solution. Absolutely. Part of the solution. And, you know, like there is a whole diversity quota that people can't legally tell you like that's what they're doing but like that's what they're doing a lot of companies especially now they have to hire diverse and then that have to can become normal right well that's the hope right the hope is every single time we have a watershed moment it started you know we had one years ago with the women's march right and um we had this opening right and people and time's up uh, launched and me too went viral and it was a whole moment in time and people kept saying you know do you think this is a fad is it gonna last and i was like 
I don't know, but it's up to us as advocates who have been doing this work for many, many years to number one, recognize that we're standing on the shoulders of, of generations of women who have campaigned and protested for years before us, number one. And number two, it's up to us as advocates today to make sure that this, the door that opened, we kick it open and we fill the room with people. And it's the same thing with this incredible moment that we're in right now with the recognition that diverse perspectives and certainly with black people, uh, that the, the awareness now of the mistreatment of the racism that exists in this country, there is no question that this exists. People of color have been talking about this forever. It's just that mainstream media and attention is now on it. And so people say, oh, is this going to last? And my feeling is like, it's up to us to make sure that we do what we can and that we make sure that this lasts and we make sure that we are not living in the same mindset in, in next year. As we witness a shift in the way women and minorities are portrayed in the media, we do become more aware of how we are perceived by others and how we can act to change these perspectives by creating new work that is truly authentic and being receptive to growth. Through this time, personally, I feel that journey has really truly began because I work in a way that was very unaware of what prejudice means. If I didn't get that job, yes, in the back of my mind, I will always wonder, is it because I'm Asian or is it because my skin tone? But it wasn't until now with these movements that happened. You knew it was. I knew it was. Exactly. Maybe it's a cultural thing, right? I just go, you know what? I'm not talented enough for this opportunity. I'm going to work harder. We keep working harder. But it wasn't until now that we all kind of come to this stop to realize what our personal values are, right? And we mm-hmm. want to position ourselves. When I was shooting Kay Upton, for example, at that time, when everybody was looking at her as a sexual object, yeah, I was photographing her as a, to me, she was like a goddess. I was celebrating yes. her sexuality. And so there was a balance that wasn't there yet. When she stood in front of a Sports Illustrated cover, I was able to say, yes, now you understand what I think about sexuality and beauty. As a gay man, I couldn't give that voice to my own work. It wasn't even that you couldn't give it. It was that if you had tried, you would not have been allowed to have it anyway because there was a very locked in um, representation of, of what a woman should be, right? And so showing a woman who has, you know, boobs and blonde and is voluptuous and sensual in a way that wasn't sexualized and objectified was just not acceptable. I mean, you're talking about uh, like the height of Maxim, you know, Absolutely. like, like I remember um, Olivia Wilde and we worked together over many years. And I remember that when she called me and she's like, listen, don't freak out that I'm going to ask you this, but would you shoot me for the cover of Maxim? I was like, what? I was like, are you joking me? I was like, I cannot believe you said you would do this. And she said, I didn't agree to it. I said, if Amanda shoots it, I'll do it. And I was like, for real, we're going to do this. And then I was like, hang on a second. One of the most powerful things we can do is not just preach to the converted, is to go into the places and to embed ourselves and our perspective, in this case of women, into places that is dude bro perspective. If I can infiltrate a publication that generally represents women as objects, as stereotypes, and I can show a woman who is foxy, who is sensual, she's not a stereotype, 
and she's vulnerable and strong and feminine and masculine. Like she's all of it. That's where I want to do the work. Those are the type of message that pushes the boundary and pushes moments like when Sports Illustrated started turning its projection of who they want their viewers to be. In the last three years, it truly has turned the tide because let's say the Me Too movement, let's say all the movement that happened for Women's March. And I couldn't be more proud to be on that journey to be able to change as a photographer. So when you said that you saw my work change, that means so much to me. I, I did. And I saw your work when you first started. And there was, was a level of what of what you're saying, right? There was a level of that, a tone of that thing, because that was where it was at when you started. But the most important thing is seeing someone's growth and their desire to want to share a broader perspective. And I've seen that in your work. I wouldn't be doing this interview otherwise. <laughs> As we grow as photographers are human beings, when you get the opportunity to photograph a 55-year-old woman, mm. like a Paulina who's been modeling for oh, 30 years. amazing. Those are the moments that I began to change as a photographer. And I began to take myself outside the picture and celebrate them. And that's when mm. I realized my work began to evolve. And that's when I began to realize what your work was about. From her wealth of experience gained from a life in communication, Amanda created Girl Gaze out of necessity. Girl Gaze works to ignite the dialogue of women's portrayals in the media, especially from the point of view of the creators themselves. I want to know what fired her passion to launch this incredible platform. Let's talk about Girl Gaze. How did that came about and what is the true mission behind it? Yeah, so Girl Gaze was really born out of my own experience of prejudice as a female photographer. And like you, I could not understand how I was working so hard. I couldn't, I, I literally couldn't work any harder. And I was seeing guys who started the same time as me, just like flying by me and getting all the big ad jobs, right? So one of the big things when you're starting out as a photographer Oh, well, you have to do editorials so people can see your work. And then people who run those publications say, yeah, you know, you can do this job, but you have to pay for it yourself. And basically, if you don't have money, you can't pay to do those jobs. And therefore, you can't get the visibility and you are never going to get those paid jobs, which is how you sustain your creative life. Right. And me, I had this experience where I shot every single editorial. I was shooting covers of magazines. I was shooting for Vogue and Vanity Fair and Bazaar and every L across the world and ID and days and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I'm going broke. I have $2,000 in my bank account. I can't keep paying for these shoots. And why am I not getting hired to do any campaigns? And the bottom line is that it took me a long time to realize this, but it was because of my gender. And there were so few women who I could look to. There were women like Mary Ellen Mark. Annie Leibowitz. So it was really hard for me to find anyone to go to who was not 20 years older than me and say, hey, um, how have you forged this path? How has the journey been for you? Can you help me and guide me? Because I'm experiencing these things. There's people like Inez, who, uh, Inez and Vanude, who are incredible. And Inez is a phenomenal champion of women. And she is uh, she's actually an investor in Golgaze and has been a phenomenal support. But there were so few women ahead of me that, that weren't much older. When I realized it was straight up misogyny, 
it was heartbreaking for me. It was heartbreaking for me to realize that it did not matter how talented I was, that I was never going to be able to succeed in the way that some of my male peers were just because of my gender. And that really broke my heart. I believe that your skill and your talent is what should matter. It is about your work. And if you work hard and you're really good at what you do, it's undeniable that you should be getting the job. But that is not the case in the world. And it, and it was devastating for me to realize that. The reason I started Girl Gaze was because I didn't want the next generation of female photographers to have the experience I had. I wanted them to have a path. I wanted them to have mentorship. I wanted them to have guidance. I wanted them to not get ripped off. I wanted them to get supported. I wanted them to believe that their perspective was a value. That was what was important and to develop that. I also have been very aware of my privilege. And so for many, many years, I've always been the person who is like, great, you want me to speak on your panel? You're telling me that it's an honor I'm the only woman. I'm not speaking on your panel until you have an, at least three other women on this panel. And so what I did with Girl Gaze was I pretty much like leveraged my privilege. And I said to people who I knew, I was like, yeah, you know what? You should be hiring these girls. Like, look at this person's work. Look at that person's work. And because of my platform, I was able to say to so many young, young girls, don't do that editorial. You don't need to spend the money to do that. I can give you more exposure through me and my platform and now through Girl Gaze than any of those places will ever be able to give you. And that's what I did. What's amazing is that you have all these relationships with a lot of editor-in-chiefs out there because you have worked with all of them. And a lot of them have changed up the guards with new people have stepped in. And I'm really excited to see that. And with this I am too, Samira at Harper's oh. Bazaar. I'm so excited about. Aya, who's now Marie Claire, who was at Cosmo, a Japanese-American woman, you know, and, and Lindsay People Wagner, who's a black yes, woman that's at yeah, yeah. Vogue, and what she's doing with the Black Alliance. That's what we've been campaigning for forever. When you have diversity behind the camera, when you get in front of the camera, the outcome is diverse. And we just had the first black photographer ever to shoot a Vogue cover, ever. Like, that's appalling that in 2020, that's the case. I mean, thank God it's finally happened. But, like, let's, let's think about that, you know? I mean, thank God for Edward Enenfall, who forever has been a pioneer Every single magazine that guy has worked at, starting at IDW, any person of color in those pages is there because he advocated for that and he did that. So now he's the editor-in-chief at British Vogue and look at what he's doing. But is there any question that you put people in power who have been kept out of the power dynamic that what they create is you know, impactful and powerful because that perspective has not been shared? Maybe sound weird to say this, but I am so proud of you as a white woman that's mm. blonde, blue eyes, recognize the privilege that you have been given, even though you go through this journey and this business as a woman, also marginalized, but you forgo all that and celebrating diversity. That is so powerful. So I grew up and my sister, who's not my birth sister, but who I live with for most of my life, is a few shades of skin darker than me. You know, she's not black, she's not white, she's in the middle somewhere. And I think growing up with her and seeing how she was treated just because her skin is a couple of shades darker than mine was just devastating. Really just seeing the world through her eyes. She actually directed the first episodes of the conversation and it was her who said to me, 
we can't have four guests who are all white women on this episode. You know, she said that was 10 years ago when we first started shooting the conversation. And it was her who really educated me and allowed me to see things that I would not have seen within my privilege. It was her that opened my eyes to the blind spots that I had. And continually, I have to keep checking my blind spots because we all have them. She taught me through her experiences. As our conversation comes to an end, Amanda leaves us with her truth. One thing about your work I celebrate and love so much is that when you see a singular photo or a conversation you have on the podcast or interviews, they're all in a singular brand. They really are truly your voice and your identity, your DNA is all part of it. You know, when you photograph a woman in a very intimate way, I can hear the voice in the conversation you're having with them in an intimate conversation that was on Lifetime. Yeah, yeah. thank and you. That's what I thought was so incredibly beautiful. You're still in the most beautiful, sexy, confident outfit, and you project yourself in that way that you don't take away who you are to celebrate sensuality. And I, and I love yeah. that about you. Yeah, thank you. You know what? I'm incapable of being anything but me. I cannot, you know? I have worked hard to have that kind of ownership of myself. And, you know, whether I'm, like, you know, talking to kids in a shelter on Skid Row, which I have the phenomenal blessing of being able to do, you know, a couple of times a year, or I'm interviewing Hillary Clinton, or I'm at the White House, which, you know, I also get the opportunity to do, you know, I interview people and I go talk all over the place. And the, the only consistent thing is I bring me wherever I go. Troy Johnson writes from his hometown, San Diego. No stranger to the food world, he has been active on Food Network, hosting the program Crave, and on many other shows including Iron Chef and The Best Thing I've Ever Ate. Troy is unique as a reluctant critic who recognizes the lack of diversity in food media. Food is such a foundation of culture, and I asked Troy how he set out on his culinary journey. Thank you for joining me here today. What's going on, buddy? I'm well. I'm doing really well. Where are you right now? I'm in San Diego. I was born and raised in San Diego, the biggest baby ever born at Scripps Hospital, 11 pounds, 4 ounces, no C-section. Whatever my mom has ever done since then I, is, is right, and, and I apologize profusely for the rest of my life. So I, I stayed in San Diego. Everybody told <laughs> me that as a writer and being on TV, you have to go to L.A., New York you know, in London, wherever you want. I said, but if everybody leaves San Diego when, when they you know, develop a talent, then how is that city going to get any better? What's a food culture like in San Diego? Oh, food culture was like a T.S. Eliot wasteland about 15 years ago. Do you want Applebee's? Do you want chilies? Do you want um, a local riff on Applebee's and chilies? And then all of a sudden, you know, the whole Farm to Table really took off. And the Farm to Table movement was Alice Waters and Wolfgang Puck in California, Jeremiah Trotter. When they were mentioning farms, that was in San Diego. There was a place called Chino Farms. And they would come down and grab it from Chino and take it up to Chez Panis, take it to um, Puck's restaurants. And so we had all the bounty. We just didn't have the talent of chefs. And that changed. And Food Network really changed that, too. I grew up watching Food Network. And all the chefs and young cooks and young entrepreneurs in San Diego saw that. 
you know, they started getting creative. They started opening up these tiny little bistros. They started, you know, doing avocado toast. As a writer, you could choose to write about anything, everything that you want. Why did you choose to write about food? I didn't want to. You know, I, I, I didn't want to at all. I had zero interest in writing about food. I wrote about underground music for 10, 12 years for basically the San Diego version of the Village Voice, so the LA Weekly. I had an underground TV show that was dedicated to indie rock. I had bands like Peaches and Jurassic 5 on there and TV on the radio. All I wanted to do was write about indie and punk and hip hop. You know, 2008 happened and the economy absolutely took a long dive out of tall window. And I lost that TV show overnight. I lost the job as the music editor of that magazine and I needed a job. So I walked into this really fancy magazine. They told me, they're like, you're going to have to edit the food section. God, all I knew about food was carne asada burritos and that somebody else made food for me, you know, and it wasn't very expensive food because I was a writer. So it was really cheap and greasy and usually bought about 1 a.m. after a show. I was desperate for a job. And I just told her, I said, absolutely. I love food. I would love to, to write about food. And I took the job and I edited a guy who wrote for the New York Times, you know, for two years. But he was writing for this magazine in San Diego, just kind of as a little bit of extra cash. And he was mailing it in. He was absolutely mailing it in. He was like, ah, here's a couple words, you know. And so they told me, edit it, make it a little bit better and learn about food. So for two years, I just sat with flashcards and books. And I mean, I was learning every culinary term. I gave myself a culinary degree and then went out and ate and talked to chefs. I was a loiterer in kitchens and that was it, you know, for two years. And then they let, finally let me write about food after two years of training and studying and everything else. That's when they finally let me write about it. From there, it went pretty well. I saw a little audition for Food Network, filled out the audition. They did a demo tape, and they didn't delete right away. They called me, and they're like, we're going to give you your own show. And I'm like, you got to be kidding. What a wild world. We all love food, yet many of us grow up taking it for granted and don't learn to really appreciate it until later in life. In pop culture... Our perceptions of kitchens has been shaped by media with more chefs becoming stars and encouraging so many of us to cook at home. People are hungry for stories and want to know more about the history and origin of the food we enjoy. We long to hear about the journeys of the diverse people who created this culture and not just from the Michelin stars and James Beard winning chefs. We also want to celebrate people like cooks in night markets in Asia and small restaurant owners and authentic holes in the walls in your local neighborhood. Your dad had restaurants, right? Years ago when we moved to the United States, my dad was a photographer at one time, and he didn't speak English, so you end up in the kitchen and washing dishes at my uncle's restaurant, Chinese restaurant in Terry Ho, Indiana. I learned my way in the kitchen, but till this day, even though I can go in the kitchen and bust out a meal or two, I refuse and I refuse to clean up because it was a punishment for me. So for me to cook, that means somebody's cleaning up. I think that's why you love it so much, though, because I had a similar hate into love relationship with food. You know, my mom growing up, the woman's greatest skill culinarily was owning a microwave. Like half of our meals were handed through a car window from a nice person with a headset. We didn't have food in my house. Everybody's like, oh, you must have grown up with microgreens. And I'm like, no, I grew up with, you know, like that souvenir cup that you get in the bag when you order the supersize. I find that it's interesting during this time 
that elitism is beginning to find its equilibrium is coming together. So as a writer, you observer, what do you see that's happening now that needed to happen, number one? And two, how are these elite companies and restaurants going to survive through this time? We've seen a, a leavening. You know, we've seen an absolute flattening of any sort of hierarchy in the industry. You've seen, you know, five-star chefs, James Beard Award winners, Michelin-star chefs serving burgers to go, you know. And I think it's a great thing. Chefs have to cook in a very blue-collar a general mainstream way. And they're doing it better than any of you and I could do it. You know I mean? Their sandwiches, of course, are buttered and toasted and blah, 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 blah. It's but still incredibly elevated. Incredibly elevated. But, you know, it, that pretension that was in the industry, and I think that that came around because we made chef stars. Food Network did a great thing for food. They elevated these cooks. If you worked in a restaurant industry, you were seen as somewhat of a failure for a long time. You know, we were seeing it's like, oh, well, it looks like you did that as a fallback, you know, because you couldn't become an engineer, because you couldn't become a doctor. You fluffed off in school, you know, obviously you landed in a restaurant. Well, then Food Network came around and really got the beautiful food porn. And, you know, it just looked like, I mean, there should be 1970s, you know, brown chicken, brown cow music every time that they filmed a, you know, a pasta. And these chefs became celebrities. And I think that at some point it kind of went to their head. Every chef that was coming out of culinary school was saying, all right, well, I've done culinary school, now where's my TV show on Food Network? Mm. And, you know, it was just this like expectation of stardom. That trend has been coming down for a while, and I think the pandemic was the final thing that expedited the like, commonality in these chefs and their appreciation of simple foods and coming down off the podium, that pretension that I saw there in you know six, eight years ago just isn't there anymore. You know, I mean, it humanized everybody else. I find when chefs become common, everybody can recognize the names like a Wolfgang Puck, for example, serving the A-list of A-list at the Oscars at the same time, can open up a bistro that I can pick up a pizza at LAX. And that's something what I find is so beautiful when chefs able to saddle both of the world. And I feel like for those who have done that are the ones that are really going to make it through this. I want to touch on one thing that you said about how Food Network can change the culture of food. Chef Ming was my idol watching him growing up. God, he's got a beautiful voice. <laughs> That was the problem, though. When I watched him, I thought, well, I'm looking at someone that looks like me, but yeah. he spoke perfect English. Mm-hmm. Incredibly perfect baritone English. I wish I had that voice all the time. And it became an intimidating factor for me. I always wanted to be in the show business one way or the other. I wanted to be in front of the camera as well as behind it. That notion was so hard for me to get over. I would turn on Food Network and I would watch and hope to see other people who have some kind of an accent where they're from. And I want to touch up on this because before social media, people like me would not have a voice to ask for those things. As well as audience don't get to reach out to Food Network and say, guys, I want to learn how to cook Indian food from an Indian woman in the last few years. We have seen that shift starting to happen. If I understand what you're saying is because you sounded like Taiwan, you sounded like your country, you had that accent sounded like you haven't been here and been assimilated and been, you know, all of the personality kind of rubbed out and put towards middle America. I, now we're going towards that. Everybody's embracing it. And we've seen with the Black Lives Matter, we've seen with all the cultural shift that's happening right now. You know, we are tired of me, to be quite honest with you. I mean, we're tired of the white man hegemony. And I'm absolutely behind every single bit of this. If it means that I lose jobs, absolutely great. I want, you know, to see people of color. I want to see people with accents. I want to see people from different nationalities on the TV. I will be fine. I will figure it out. I've had enough 
head start in life just because of the way that I was born, male and white, you know, that it's time. It's time for that shift. In now Food Network, you've definitely seen that. You've seen Artie Sequera, who is, cooks Indian food. They're giving her so much more. She's a great friend of mine. They're giving her so much more play and love, and she's earned it. Jet Dila has been doing fantastic, and they're giving him every single shot on the Food Network now. Look, you want the racial diversity that you see in your community that to be on TV, you know, and you want every single neighborhood represented. And especially after shows like yours and Anthony Bourdain's from Street to Kitchen, you see these little markets you never even knew existed in these like small parts of town, these small parts of the world. And you're like, I want to see the woman who runs that on TV. I want to see the man who goes, goes to that and then cooks it on TV. You really want to see somebody that's really lived in that culture and explaining it from a firsthand perspective. Mainstream media is getting it. I was just watching Street to Kitchen before we came on. That is one of the most beautifully shot food TV shows. It was Bourdain. It was, you know, I was, it was chef's table. You know, you had, there's like people in the way that you can kind of see you over there and this like soft light. It was, be- it was beautifully done. Yes, I had to bring some fashion you know, note to it. I wanted to make yeah. sure it wasn't shot in a documentary way. And I learned a lot through that journey. And incredibly enough, it's through that journey, knowing that things need to pivot, I began trying to understand for me, What's next iteration that should happen mm-hmm. in a food culture? Right? How do we celebrate food from this point forward? Yeah, it's going into those neighborhoods like you did in Street to Kitchen. It's going into those street markets. It's going into you know, little makers around the, around the country. I mean, some of our best cultural arbiters have always found that small thing, that off, off, <laughs> off, off Broadway thing, that tiny little fashion person who's struggling in a, in a, a little market in LA, whatever it is. You know, Jonathan Gold was a legend because he went into every tiny strip mall. What some people would see as seedy, other people would just see as not having the economic advantage of being in hip little Italy, Beverly Hills, whatever. It wasn't seedy. It was just what people could afford who came to this country. He went into those places, you know, and tried to, as best he could as a white male, you know, interpret the story of those cuisines. That's the kind of underrepresentation that we need. You mentioned earlier about mainstream television for a long time wanting the perfect voice, the perfect diction, the star celebrity, mostly white male. It's the same thing with rock and roll. You know, like rock and roll for the longest time, we needed Elvis to translate the blues that we're hearing from the black community. That was black music. That was from black Americans. That's, I was a soul of it. It's just that America wasn't ready. I mean, maybe America was ready. The mainstream media didn't think that America was ready to have you know, a black superstar playing his music. So they found a bunch of different white people to kind of reinterpret black cultural music. And then it shifted, right? And then eventually we're like, why are we only having the white people do, do this? You know, why don't we go into the cultures that actually created this music and have that person do it? That's so much more authentic. And I think food is it. And I agree with you. And that happens in the fashion world as well, right? Undiscovered talents and shows like Project Runways and it really discovers stars. I have a love and a hate of media, by all means, everybody was watching, know that I should not be complaining that I like to have more opportunities because I've been given the most incredible opportunities. I'm one of the few Asian American ever host three hours on the red carpet for the Oscars years ago. You know, and those opportunities happen because yes, we're celebrating diversity. And that pendulum swung in a way that gave me the opportunity. So I recognize now that it is another swing that needs it to happen. And Truly, you and I can agree on this. We don't care how we get there. We don't care why you're going there as long as you get there. And we will find that equilibrium, right? And most importantly, I think it's because back then, television's a tube, 
that it literally, you are glued to it and it tells you what you're supposed to like. They never care what you actually wanted. They tell you you're supposed to drink this because we're giving you this as advertising. We didn't have choices. But look at the streaming media option that we have now. It's so many opportunities for people to just create content and upload anywhere they want. Now, I think that the big traditional houses of media, like Food Network, they have to pay attention to everyday people who sure. are the people who built the backbone for their show. So I applaud them for recognizing Carl Hall, and Jatila, I saw them posted that they're going to be involved with the show more. Yeah. You know, I would say about time, but you know what? It's never too late. Troy observes how culture is becoming increasingly democratic, with more opportunities available for voices which haven't traditionally been heard in media. Especially with the advent of social media, more people than ever are able to have a platform. Food Network and other channels as well, we're talking about food. They're not just celebrating the food any longer. They're celebrating the people. We're starting to see that shift and we're starting to see that we're not celebrating just the profession of chef. I love chop. Well, I love the idea that mistake can be made. And through that mistake, you're learning. And then you have everyday people who are cooks and celebrated. I think that's the new frontier. Do you feel like because the equilibrium is starting to happen that the Thomas Kellers, the, the James Beer Award winners, are their food culture going to be diluted through this time? I don't think it's going to be diluted. I think it's going to be properly dispersed. You know, I think that you're, you're going to have the appreciation for that Thai chef who's had this tiny little spot in this you know, strip mall and didn't have investors, but was cooking amazing food. That person's going to be elevated. And you're still going to appreciate Thomas Keller. He's one of the best masterful chefs in the world. You know, you're still going to appreciate that person. But there's going to be more room on the stage for every single culture. You made a great point about YouTube and Instagram and you know social media opening the doors because before social media, it's like this main stage. You know, they've got security around the perimeters, only certain people get in, and YouTube and Instagram dug holes under the security and let other people onto the stage. They dug secret interests into mainstream media attention. They found their way to the stage. And it's been one of the, the greatest equalizers. I've seen so many talented people on social media that I never would have seen. Somebody who works at Target, somebody who works at, you know, a post office and is doing comedy or is doing food. You know, I'm like, how did this person not end up in media? You know, and now we're getting that. Troy's writing is based on weaving narratives, the stories of people behind the scenes who create the food. He recognizes and listens and encourages all of us to do the same. I've never enjoyed the, the term food critic. That was the role that I was forced into because I could write, you know, and they said that's the biggest feature writing spot in a magazine is the, you know, restaurant review. So I was forced into food criticism. I've never enjoyed food criticism because I've never been that sort of critic where I walk in and I go, yes, no, yes, no, ratatouille. You know, I mean, never think so highly of your own opinion and I would never think so highly of mine. So what I always tried to do was do it just interpret a story, you know, go in there and study what the food is, what the restaurant is trying to do. You know, I've sat in a thousand restaurants that have tried to do this, compare them to how it's been done in the past and, you know, tell a story about the restaurant itself. You know, it's, you're not in there as a food critic to, you know, pound the pulpit of your own bully mechanism, you know, and that's what food criticism became. And especially now that, you know, restaurants are so in danger, being a food critic 
is especially dicey. We're going to see some much nicer food criticism. I think some of the food criticism across the United States and in the world got way too mean, got way too evil. It was just tearing people down. It was going there shooting chefs for sport. And it was this sort of elitist, judgmental thing. And you know, I think now we're going to see you know, a calming, a, a, a celebrating, like you said. You know, um, It's a really wild time. You were talking about when Black Lives Matter happened. As a white journalist, it froze me. I, I didn't know what to write about. I didn't know if I had a voice in this. I, I stepped back. I didn't write anything for two weeks. And I just said, I want to let their voices be heard. Now is not my time. And then I heard my black community friends saying, you know, you have to join the voice. You have to be, you have to use your position to contribute to this conversation. But man, it was so paralyzing for two weeks. Was, I felt like I was on a stage that I should be seated, you know, and I was being, even if I was being pulled up, by you know the black community saying no use your spot uh, contribute i don't want to interpret this right now i want this to be pure and honest and real so you know it was really it's been a reckoning for everybody as a writer and in, in terms of inclusivity a year and a half ago i realized in my own writing that i i was sitting there and i was so unhappy and i talked to my wife and i said look why am i so unhappy with my writing right now i said you know what it is i have just been covering the big openings in san diego and you know what those openings happen to be white males all white males. I'm like, I just have all white males here. I'm like, okay, so I made a year ago, I made a conscious effort to go into our Asian neighborhoods, to go into our Latin neighborhoods, and into our African neighborhoods. You know, we have some great Eritrean food here. You know, I, I made my efforts to do that, but I didn't take into account black culture because I saw black culture as Americans. I didn't see them as a culture I needed to help rise up. I figured, well, they're the same as I am. You know, that's my own blindness. No, they weren't. You know, there's a systemic problem of not raising those voices in America. And I need to, you know, be actively inclusive. It sounds like math. It sounds bad. It sounds like you're trying to do performative things, but you have to do that math. You have to say, I need to cover a person of color and make sure that I'm representative of my city in my writing. You know, and so I've absolutely overhauled everything I did. It was a great reckoning for every single one of us. I would love to see more writing out there, really celebrate the people, their yes. journey, how there are a lot of struggles to get to where they're at, right? Chefs don't all of a sudden overnight pop up to be amazing chefs. Not that I know of. They all work from the kitchen, a sous chef, and they, they struggle. And, and I recently found out how, how little they get paid as a sous chef. I was shocked. You know? so yeah. I'm like, wow, really do have to pay your dues. I want to know the chef before I eat their food. Maybe that's a new culture, a new way. If you go into a I, restaurant, you meet the I chef totally first. I totally agree with you. I want to eat from somebody who has a lot of their soul invested into it for the right reasons. You know, you talk about knowing the stories of these people. It's not about going in and being like, well, that microgreen was wilty. You know, like it's about knowing that person and what they came through. Yelp has, and I, 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 God bless Yelp for a lot of different reasons. They have, you know, it's become a yellow pages and it has been used for good in the past and it has helped small businesses get marketing they might otherwise not have. But screw Yelp in a lot of other different ways. It's given a, a platform for people to, you know, bully on small business owners, to walk into a restaurant and not humanize them, you know, instead dehumanize them, rip on the server for slow service, you know, rip on the chef. They don't take the time to realize that this is somebody who 
hey, learn to cook like you did at your father's knee, you know, and then, you know, went through 10, 15 years of, of working as a line cook into a sous chef and, and then finally scraped together all their life savings to create this restaurant, you know, their dream. And somebody comes in on a Friday night with seven of their friends without a reservation and they don't get a table and they go straight to Yelp and they say, God, these guys are the worst. They were rude. I could see two empty tables over there. They could have put me there. And I'm like, we as a culture need to ease up on our criticism and listen a little bit more. Thank you to Amanda and Troy for these much needed conversations and for their continuing work to empower others. Thank you to all my listeners for your constant support. Please subscribe to this podcast for more open conversations. You can visit our website at letstalkwithusite.com and follow me on Instagram at usite88 for updates. Let's Talk is a production of 88 Faces. I'm your host, Usite. Art director, Luis Jaime. And writer, editor, and producer, Trevor Swanjan. Thank you for listening.